Before we start today's episode, we just wanted to make a quick announcement that we're hiring a new co-host. If you're interested in becoming an Astro Soundbites co-host, you can check out the link to apply in the show notes. We hope to see your application soon. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with two recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD student at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. You're listening to episode 71, Galaxies Say Halo. Galaxies Say Halo? Like it. <laughs> my, my best attempt at a pun, okay? I'm not punny. It was good. It was good. I liked it. Thank you. Cosmological simulations, I feel like, are everywhere on the archive at astronomy meetings, and in my humble opinion, they make some of the most beautiful visualizations of simulations that I've seen in the astronomy community. We usually don't just talk about simulations in our episodes, but it's really easy to tie back these types of simulations of large-scale structure and the universe back to observations, and I think we'll hear a lot about that in the astrobytes today. But Okay, we need to hold on and actually think and talk a little bit more about what a cosmological simulation actually is. So what is a cosmological simulation defined as, and what sort of scales do these simulations study? Well, the definitions are a little bit loose here, but I would say that a cosmological simulation is any simulation rooted in cosmology as the underlying driving science goal. So to understand cosmology, the, the base questions of where did we come from, how did the universe evolve from initial conditions, you need to simulate a substantial chunk of the universe over substantial fractions of the universe's history. So cosmological simulations typically consist of simulations of cubes of space, tens to hundreds of megaparsecs on a side, and evolution from high redshifts to today, typically redshifts of 100 or greater, maybe, just as a ballpark. And I should mention that there are tons of different approaches for simulating the universe in this way. I think Kirsten is going to mention a couple of different ones a little bit later. But sometimes in your cosmology, you want to reproduce a few galaxy halos to very high resolution. Sometimes you only want to preserve large-scale structure. Sometimes you want a little bit of both. So it just depends on exactly what you're trying to solve with your simulation. Yeah, and I guess the redshifts that you focused most on would be determined by what epoch in the universe's history you're trying to look at. Yeah, totally. A lot of the reionization simulations I see, like they just, they evolve the whole universe down, but then they like just focus on Z equals 6 to 10 or something. So thanks, Alex. That was a great introduction. 
So what even is a dark matter halo? I know they're really important in cosmology simulations, especially when we think about galaxy evolution. So a dark matter halo is the inferred halo of invisible matter that permeates and surrounds individual galaxies as well as groups or clusters of galaxies. And so back when we first kind of figured out that this existed, we found evidence for the existence of this dark matter halo from studies of motions of stars and gas in galaxies. And what we found is that the quantity and distribution of the luminous matter or the baryonic matter in these disk galaxies, they can't account for the rotation curves that are observed therefore implying that there's a significant amount of invisible matter. And so from these and basically looking at velocity dispersion, we were able to figure out that the dark matter that exists is around 90% of the matter present in galaxies, whereas the baryonic matter is, you know, roughly around 10%. So most of our universe is made up of this stuff. One thing about dark matter halos that's always kind of confused me. It's not clear to me that there's a one-to-one -one connection between the dark matter halos that are described in simulation studies and galaxies that are referred to in observations. I think that the, these dark matter units that are referred to in simulations could contain like just one associated galaxy or multiple. Yeah, I remember seeing this recently when I was looking at a simulation I was using and it was like they use special algorithms. I think one's called like friends of friends or something like that. Is that I think that's a common one where they like basically search for which galaxies associated to which halo. And it can be really tricky because they're overlapping and you have to like basically define a density at which like you're saying, okay, this is the end of the halo and this is where the next galaxy begins. I don't know, it seems all a bit ambiguous. So another really important question when we talk about cosmological simulations, I think is the difference between n-body and hydrodynamic simulations. That's the first thing you talk about when you're describing how your cosmological simulation works. People wanna know the difference between n-body and hydrodynamics. So does anyone wanna give a quick explanation of what the two are and what they mean? I had to dig into this <laughs> super hard as an exoplanet person, and I hope that I have a satisfying answer for you guys. From what I found, in-body simulations, what they use is basically they solve this collisionless Boltzmann equation, and it's mostly for dark matter itself. So we're not talking about baryonic matter. So what this means is that it can only be used for dark matter simulations and you can't include any baryonic matter like stars or anything that we see or interact with. Whereas hydrodynamical simulations are kind of the best of both worlds, I guess but they're computationally expensive because generally they consider both dark matter and baryonic matter, so the luminous stuff. So basically this method can simulate particle flow and interactions with structures and highly deformable bodies. So it replaces fluid with 
a set of particles that carry properties around within the simulation, such as mass, speed, position, and they move according to these governing dynamics. And if you're familiar with fluid dynamics, basically they use the Navier-Stokes equations. So, so that's kind of how those work. And they describe the physical properties of continuous fields in fluids. So to summarize, in-body simulations generally just dark matter and hydrodynamical simulations, you can include both dark matter and baryonic matter. You can have baryonic simulations that are n-body when you have, where an n is very small, right? Like when it's like the moon and the earth or something. But once you scale n up enough to answer a cosmological question, then yeah, I think you move into dark matter regimes. It's also interesting when you move to a hydrodynamic simulation, there's a question of how do you track the fluid? So there's like a whole range of different like Lagrangian codes, Eulerian codes, adaptive Lagrangian Eulerian codes, which all differ in how they track like a grid with fluid moving through it or the grid moves with the fluid. And all of these details matter based on the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah. And I think in one of the last, not one of the last episodes, but in a few episodes back, we actually we're really questioning this grid versus mesh method, which getting to dive into again, it's hydrodynamical simulations that have both like you're talking about. I kind of have some trauma from that episode. <laughs> like it was, I think it was, was it funky fluids? Maybe. <laughs> but I just remember like that was one of the first episodes I'd ever done and I felt like I didn't know enough about it. And then it ended up being that like you and Will explained it for me. <laughs> things have changed i would hopefully know what it was now i don't know it's just a tricky concept to explain like you kind of need a whiteboard like you're swimming with the simulation (laughs) or you're like a little pool that's having things swam through it is that a good analogy i don't know honestly probably (laughs) yeah (laughs) well thanks so much guys for enlightening us all on different types of cosmological simulations and what they even are So now we're going to dive right into these astrobytes, and Kirsten is going to tell us how cosmological simulations will enable the next generation of gravitational wave detectors to understand black holes better. Kirsten, do you want to take it away? Of course, yeah. So the astrobyte that I'm going to be talking about is called Investigating Supermassive Black Hole Mergers Using Cosmological Simulations. So Since ground-based gravitational wave detectors like LIGO and Virgo, there have been a lot of stellar mass black holes detected. But one of the things that these ground-based interferometers can't do is they aren't able to detect higher mass mergers like those from supermassive black hole mergers. And so supermassive black holes are found at the center of galaxies and they have masses on the order of 10 to the 5 or 10 to the 6 solar masses. So they're absolutely huge. And in the case of a supermassive black hole merger, when two galaxies collide, the central black holes, they move towards this new galactic center and they form basically a super massive black hole binary and they rotate around each other until they eventually merge and 
This is something that'll actually happen to us in the future. We'll crash into Andromeda and our supermassive black holes will eventually merge. But currently, we aren't able to detect these supermassive black hole mergers that are happening. And the main reason why is because they produce gravitational waves with longer wavelengths than the ground-based interferometers are able to detect. So why do the larger mass black holes produce less energetic gravitational waves? I had thought that the strain that you measure is inversely proportional to the combined mass of the system that's merging. So as the mass goes up, the pitch when you shift it goes down. So you just are out of the particular frequency range at which the ground-based observatories can detect it. So it's less like the energy of the gravitational wave and it's more the strain that you're using to detect it? Yes. So basically, because of this, we aren't able to detect these supermassive black holes. But the, the small stellar mass ones, we can definitely detect. But with an interferometer in space... Particularly, there's the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, or LISA for short. And LISA's expected to be able to detect these supermassive black hole mergers. And even though LISA's going to be able to detect them, LISA is still pretty far out from actually being launched in space to where we can get data from it. So... Lisa is expected to launch in 2037, which means that this is actually the perfect time to figure out merger rates and the gravitational wave signals that we can expect from Lisa. Similar to how basically all of this theory work went into figuring out what JWST will be able to detect. So we're basically in the sweet spot right now. And given that the cosmological simulations model black holes and galaxy evolution and they span a wide range of redshifts, which redshift is just a measure of cosmic time. They're the perfect tool for actually probing the population of supermassive black hole mergers that are most likely out there. What this paper does to answer this question is they use ASTRID, which is a hydrodynamical simulation and they use this to characterize supermassive black hole mergers at redshifts greater than two. And they see how it stacks up against another hydrodynamical simulation that's called TNG. And the reason why they're interested in ASTRID particularly is because most cosmological simulations only resolve higher mass black holes. So around 10 to the six solar masses. And given the sensitivity of LISA, these simulations could miss a lot of super black hole mergers that would actually be detectable by LISA. So that's why they're interested in Astrid. I might have missed this, but the black holes that you're referring to that merge are always associated with host galaxies. Is that right? Yes. So by determining the black hole, supermassive black hole merger rate, you're using that as a proxy for the galaxy merger rate in these simulations and in the universe. Okay. So Astrid is unique because it actually can resolve these lower mass black hole mergers because it uses a lower mass seed black hole model down to 10 to the 4.5 solar masses. And 
The idea of how supermassive black holes are made is that they grow out of these smaller black holes, and that's what we're referring to as the seed here. But fun fact, we actually haven't seen these smaller black holes that the supermassive black holes grow out of. And this elusive group of black holes is called intermediate mass black holes, and they're around this 10 to the 4.5 seed mass. So this cosmological simulation falls nicely into this category where they're able to make these intermediate black holes. And so Astrid also does something else that's unique from other cosmological simulations, and it includes dynamical friction into the simulation. And what that does is it accounts for the effective loss of the kinetic energy and momentum of the black holes through gravitational interaction with the surrounding matter. And what this does is it helps in accurately modeling the orbital dynamics of the in-spiraling black holes to small scales. Given this model, what they did is they started off with this sanity check where they compared Astrid to TNG. And they found that both of these models agree pretty well when they have a seed mass of around 10 to the 6 for redshifts higher than 4. But there's a little bit of an issue. TNG produces more higher mass black holes at lower redshifts, so between 2 to 4. So in this regime, they, you aren't exactly comparing apples to apples. So most of the comparisons that they make are in this regime where they do, in fact, correspond to each other pretty nicely. So from there, what they do is they determine the rate at which the gravitational wave signals from the supermassive black holes reach LISA by integrating the total number of mergers in the simulation over all redshift values. So basically they just get this total rate. And then what they found is that Astrid has a higher overall merger rate than TNG simulations, mostly because it includes black holes with much lower masses than those in TNG. However, when you limit Astrid to black hole mergers massive enough to be resolved in TNG, so this 10 to the 6 regime, they found that Astrid has a lower merger rate than TNG. So I guess TNG doesn't include dynamical friction. Is that right? It does not. Yeah. Is the reason they don't include it just because it's way more computationally intensive? Honestly, they didn't really say, but I imagine that that's the case because they're looking at similar scales. And so I imagine any sort of extra thing that you add into the simulation probably slows it down by quite a bit because these cosmological simulations take forever to run anyway. So going back to this idea of TNG and Astrid looking at the same region and with the same initial seed mass of 10 to the 6th. Like I said, they were between TNG and Astrid. Astrid found a lower merger rate than TNG when looking at the same parameter space. And the reason why this is, is actually kind of interesting and kind of cool. 
by adding in this dynamical friction, Astrid takes into account that black holes take longer to in-spiral towards the center of their galaxies. The inclusion of a low seed mask and dynamical friction significantly affects black hole merger rates in cosmological simulations. So this dynamical friction seems to be an important factor to include when you're planning on making a cosmological simulation, particularly for things that Lisa can detect. The last thing that they do is they determine the expected gravitational wave signals from the black hole mergers in the simulation. And the way that they do this is they use strain like we talked about earlier. So the strain is just the measure of the gravitational wave magnitude against their frequencies. And so what they found is that Astrid covers a larger range of frequencies compared to TNG. And so TNG is limited to the low frequency high strain regime, whereas Astrid is not. This means that including the lower mass seed black holes that produce these higher gravitational wave frequencies is crucial to actually probe the full range of LISA detections that we can expect to have. Basically, this paper was pretty cool because it's it's showing that LISA is going to be able to see a lot and we need to start kind of making our cosmological simulations a bit more robust. When is LISA's launch date? 2037. That's a long time. Yeah, it's pretty far. <laughs> For some reason, I thought it would be sooner. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, oh, they're doing a paper on Lisa. It must be coming out in the next like five years. And nope. But I feel like this is kind of similar. Like JWST didn't launch for a while and people had their whole careers basically with papers like that. It's also kind of wild to me because in the futuristic episode series we talked about using lisa to find the rate of merging binary white dwarf systems which is like complete other end of the mass scale and so being able to now resolve like the far higher end than we're able to do from the ground it just seems like in both directions lisa is gonna like revolutionize our understanding of the populations out there yeah i'm excited to see all of the cool science that's going to come out once Lisa launches. We have a lot to look forward to in the astronomy field. Thank you so much, Kirsten. That was really interesting to hear about. I hadn't heard a lot about cosmological simulations and gravitational waves, like that combination. I'm sure there's so many papers, but for some reason I've never looked into it that much, so that was really interesting. So now it's time for my sonification, which I'm really excited about. Because I feel like this was a, like a golden nugget in the sonification world. I'm going to play the sonification for you all now.
Okay. What did you guys think? That was so fun. I loved it. Any guesses? An alien abduction. My guess is that it's two things merging. And because it's a cosmology episode, my guess is that it's Hmm. two galaxies merging or two halos merging in a simulation. Ooh, that's a good guess. I think you are like basically spot on. Yeah. Like almost. Wait, almost. Come on. (laughs) So what it is is a formation of a warm dark matter halo. So this was actually created as like an audio visualization project. So the sound is supposed to go along with the visualization. I'll also put a link to the video in the, the show notes, of course. So a bit about this sonification, it was actually made from an N-body simulation, so 17 million particles to approximate this distribution of dark matter. It was sonified, or as they put it in the paper, musification. They didn't want to call it sonification. They wanted to call it (laughs) musification by Nuria Bonet in 2016. They actually wrote this four-page paper on the sonification and how they did it. It's kind of poetic, the paper in itself. I don't know. It includes like lots of quotes about what sonification means and like feeling. And so Nuria uses a visual programming language called MAX or MSP for music and multimedia. I don't think we've ever talked about that in regards to sonification. But the, the big key here, which is different than how I think a lot of the other sonifications we hear, is that rather than the sonifications coming from the data, so from like data to data analysis to mapping the data to sound, what they did here is they did data, so the big end-body simulation, they created the visualization, then they did like an RGB analysis, so they converted the simulation to red, green, blue, and you know kind of saw how the colors are displayed on the screens. And then they mapped from RGB to sound. They also emphasized the fact that rather than, yeah, just showing the data in real time, they sort of extracted different parameters like size of the dark matter halo, spatial concentration and distribution of the particles throughout the evolution of the piece, rather than just taking the raw data and sonifying it. They called it a high-level sonification where the relationships between the data points were explored more than just like sonifying the data, the raw data in time throughout the simulation. Yeah, that feels more like it's highlighting the inspiration rather than the instruction aspect of the sonification. Yeah, so I guess it's still really impressive that you were able to get it. I guess that means they did a really good job. Fair point. Maybe? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my sonification. Very fitting for Dark Matter Halos. And I think it leads really nicely into Alex's astrobite, which is all about how initial conditions can affect dark matter halos and their evolution through time and simulations. Also, Alex, is this your last astrobite summary or will you do another one? I think it's my last summary. Yeah, I think it is. I'll talk about my research on the last episode, but this will be the last one I cover that's someone else's research. Okay, everyone. So this is Alex's Last Astrobite summary on Astro Sound Bites 2023. He also just got the sonification right. He has an amazing <laughs> postdoc. 
He's just winning all around. Oh my gosh. Wow. Y'all are hyping me up this episode. We need, we need, maybe I'll do another episode after this one if this is what they're going to be like. <laughs> uh, okay. Yes. Thanks so much, Sabrina, for that awesome sonification. That was super cool. My astrobite is called How to Make Genetically Engineered Halos in Cosmological Simulations, based on a paper by Nina Roth and others published in Monthly Notices in 2015. Kirsten, you gave a confused face at the name genetically engineered halos. Yes. So <laughs> actually, the, from the paper itself, they use the phrase genetically modified halos, not genetically engineered halos. And I actually like that terminology better because it feels like an homage to genetically modified organisms, GMOs. Yeah, I was going to say, so we've got GMO, like galaxies now <laughs> exactly yeah genetically modified galaxies as a little disclaimer gmo should not scare you we've been genetically modifying food for thousands of years this paper <laughs> tries to genetically modify galaxy halos in a way that i'll describe in just a little bit so we have been talking about these dark matter halos but i don't think we emphasized yet just how complex dark matter halos are when you fully resolve everything that's going on. I mean, they, they can have multiple galaxies. There's hot circumgalactic media that surrounds the galaxies with feedback mechanisms going on. And, and then you have the dark matter halos themselves, which can be clumpy and can grow and can merge and can do all these complex dynamical things. And a big research theme in cosmology is connecting observations of our galaxies in the present day, both to cosmological initial conditions and the individual histories of each galaxy and the clusters that they reside within, so that you can better understand what is caused by the differences in initial conditions and what is caused by differences in how these galaxies and these systems evolve. Basically, a nature versus nurture argument. And this is really difficult to do with simulations because Cosmological simulations, you have to make some tough trade-off decisions between temporal and spatial scales. So either you can run a massive cosmological volume to observe a large diversity of halos that can form and evolve, but then of course you can't follow any of them with the resolution that's required to understand the small-scale feedback processes. And you can imagine there's the trade-off in the other direction if you have a really small box and just a couple of halos, you can resolve the small scale feedback and know what they're doing in detail, but then you don't have enough halos to be able to make statistically rigorous statements about this nature versus nurture argument. So I'm assuming what you're going to tell us is a way that we can do both? That's the hope. One more problem that I'll raise before we jump into what they're proposing is basically what you brought up, Kirsten. It's the apples to apples, apples to oranges comparisons, which I think plagues a lot of cosmology, at least from what I've seen. There are a lot of stylistic choices in these simulation codes and how the initial conditions are set up and groups have different ways of representing these variables and slightly tweaking the numbers. And at the end of the day, you can get results where it's really unclear whether two groups disagree based on the methodology, the approach used to simulate it, or because there's something physically meaningful that's different between those two simulations. And so this kind of like apples to apples comparison is super important, but how do we get there? So that is what this paper 
is trying to introduce. In fact, it's a new diagnostic tool for trying to resolve some of these issues. So in the paper, a cosmological volume with about 70 megaparsecs on a side is evolved from a redshift of 99 to a redshift of zero. Not sure why they picked 99. I think it's just far enough high redshift for what they were thinking about that a lot of time has passed for a halo to grow and evolve. Okay, so the initial conditions for the halo at the redshift of 99 were determined by sampling from a Gaussian random field, okay? So it's just a, a random field of overclumping and underclumping in the high redshift universe, assuming some fixed cosmology. Now, here's the catch. For this particular paper, they then, after they've simulated this halo, go back to the initial conditions and impose mathematical constraints on the probabilistic distributions associated with each parameter. And this allows them to slightly tweak individual aspects of the initial conditions while still preserving the overall statistics of the high redshift initial conditions. So basically, this is a way to try and, from the very earliest moments, create tiny, almost like perturbations on your original model so that you can track those contributions to the halo you get at a redshift of zero. So just rephrasing here. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they take this initial conditions, they model this galaxy, the way it behaves, and then they go back and then they basically just say there's some spread on all of these parameters and we just, we can kind of tweak within this spread. Do they say how much of a spread that they're using? Like, you know, does it need to be like one sigma or something within whatever they were considering or something like that? That's a good question. I don't actually know how much they constrained the the parameters the second time around in these simulations, but I think it's a pretty introductory paper. And it seems like they're introducing this method with the intention of going back and doing this lots of different ways to look at, like, in controlled experiments, the contributions of one particular, like, deviation from what you would expect. So I'd imagine the the different ways that they constrain the initial conditions would vary based on each of those experiments they're trying to do. So there's that dinosaur thing where you can like rearrange it yep. into multiple different plots, I guess you could say, and then they all have the same statistics. We'll link this in the show notes as well, and we can send this to Kirsten. But did they say they were inspired by that, or were they sure that that could happen statistically, and then they tried to make it happen with cosmology, or were they like, let's see if we can alter these dark matter halos. Sabrina, I don't know if you read the astrobite. The, my astrobite referenced this data set. That's where I got it from. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing because they said the same thing. This astrobite actually referenced that data set, the, what they call the Datasaurus dozen, where based on summary statistics alone, all of these different data sets look the same. But then if you actually just plot them and look at them, they end up looking completely different. I don't know if that's what the authors of this publication had in mind. This is great because they can tweak their halo, look at it at low redshift and compare it to their reference one, their like control. And then they have a truly apples to apples comparison 
of what they've changed and how it affected the end result. And they call it genetic modification because it's changing the halo when it was still very, very early on in its formation. I love that. So I'm assuming they found some pretty interesting stuff with these simulations or this method. Yeah, so they use a hydrodynamics code called Gadget. They set up two modifications to the initial halo. In the first experiment, the density of the innermost 10% of the halo at redshift 99 is increased by a factor of two. So they just make it more centrally concentrated. And in the second experiment, they do the opposite. So they decrease the central concentration by a factor of two. And they then look at some parameters associated with the z equals zero versions of those halos. First of all, unsurprisingly, the change in concentration is propagated through the simulation while almost all the other properties of that halo are maintained. Like you get the orientation of the filaments of the cosmic web in, in the volume that gets preserved between your different experiments. Um, you just have a more massive halo. What's interesting is they use the halos from each of the three simulations along with other halos within their cosmological volume they simulated to compare the initial density of the halo versus the time scale at which you would expect the halo to collapse. So apparently this is a, a comparison that is done and reported often in the literature and there is a set relationship that is established, but there's a lot of scatter in that relationship, and it's unclear what's causing that scatter. And now, by changing the central concentration, by evolving this halo to redshift zero, they see that the mass accretion changes. You have a more centrally located halo, it accretes more mass, it's more massive at a redshift of zero, but that those halos in each of the three simulations, the control and the two experiments, all three of those are consistent with the observed reported correlation between the collapse timescale and the initial overdensity. So the major result from this paper in just this simple little experiment is that the relationship that they found across the three simulations were consistent with what's been previously reported in literature for the collapse timescale and the initial overdensity of the halo, which suggests that if the differences in the simulations of the halo were the mass accretion caused by initial like over clumping, right, higher or lower central concentrations, then it turns out the mass accretion is not responsible for a lot of the spread that we see in this observed relationship because all of these simulations varying in mass accretion rate are consistent with that kind of central relationship. And that's not something that was expected in the literature. So I think just with this little experiment, that was a big surprise. That seems like it would throw a few kinks into probably the research and the way that it's going. But also it might make things a bit easier for people and a bit more. Now there are different things that you can look at to see at why certain simulations are giving you different numbers, but it's not going to be that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that was my astrobike. Great. How does it feel to have completed your last astrobite? I feel changed. 
different than I was before. I can't tell you how just yet, but it'll come. Well, we're not losing you yet. We still have a couple episodes and your farewell episode. So don't worry. You don't have to say bye to Alex just yet. Do we want to go ahead and do our one sentence summaries? Kirsten, do you want to tell us yours? Yeah, of course. To take advantage of the discoveries that Lisa will make, cosmological simulations need to take into account dynamical friction and include lower black hole seed masses. And Alex? A new mathematical framework has made it easier to vary some parameters of a simulated halo and fix others, offering a means for investigating each factor contributing to a halo's growth. Thank you both for these awesome summaries of astrobytes and taking the time to, I guess, sort of out of both of your subfields, I guess some of you both have worked on this app one point or another. Do we think that all subfields can learn something from these large-scale simulations? Like, does Alex's paper have anything that we could take to, like, all the different planet simulations? Because initial conditions are a thing in planetary modeling as well. Or are they just too big to have any influence on certain subfields? I think that the methods that are used in cosmological simulations can definitely be, at least in in my subfield, are definitely useful. I think that this idea of genetically modifying things, it sounds very interesting. So when we're thinking about maybe trying to evolve a planet and see what we get, how much can we fudge the initial conditions and get the same thing? It, that would be kind of interesting. Yeah, I would have naively thought that this problem of apples to oranges apples to apples comparing between styles of simulations would be less important outside of cosmology because you're not evolving over billions of years and so maybe it actually might make sense to approach things using different methodologies to see if you get similar answers but at the same time maybe it's more of a question of the ratio between time scales that you're trying to resolve versus like the full time scale of the simulation because maybe in a cosmology you're trying to resolve millions of years across billions whereas in planet formation you're trying to resolve i don't know what the relevant time scales <laughs> are but seems like significantly shorter so it seems like it would still be a really big problem definitely significantly shorter <laughs> <laughs> It seems like you could write a very similar paper, though. Like, if you wanted to produce planets of a certain size, then you could say, okay, I'm going to tweak the initial conditions of this proto-planetary disk slightly and maybe keep the same statistics. Like, it seems like something that you could do for smaller-scale simulations, but maybe it's more conceptually applying or applying a simulation technique versus something actually related to the science yeah maybe the philosophy mm -hmm. would transfer more than the the detailed technique probably when you're looking at cosmological simulations a lot of them and this is just a guess i have no idea but i imagine that they do a lot of optimization to actually make these codes run more efficiently and on like smaller things like uh, when you're looking at stars or exoplanets or something like that, maybe optimization isn't as important where, you know, maybe you'll 
maybe your code takes a month to run. And so it'll speed it up by like a few days or maybe like a week. But I don't know how long cosmological simulations take to run. Maybe they take months to run. It seems like some of these cosmology simulations, they'll just invest a huge amount of time into getting it ready to run. And then they run it once and I don't know, it takes months maybe on the best supercomputer in the world. And then they just start using those simulations to do science perpetually. I think there was that one data set from, I think, Flatiron, actually, Camels, which I feel like was trying to get around that a bit by saying, okay, maybe we can use deep learning to do these simulations such that we don't have to just run it once and we can do more with the simulate, extend them or learn more and add things with deep learning rather than rerunning from scratch. Yeah, totally right. I I think that just the computational complexity of the problem does naturally lend itself to deep learning solutions so that you can run many different iterations tweaking things and not just take as ground truth the one simulation that you ran at really, really high resolution. But then, of course, like if you're building these so-called like emulators for your original simulation, then you have to also question how well you're getting right the simulation by anchoring it to to the traditional way of doing it wherever possible. I think that is a really hard endeavor, but could be really useful. You have to understand your original simulation really well because then the artifacts of that simulation show up in deep learning and then never ends. All I've learned from this is that cosmology is hard and <laughs> it takes a lot of time and effort. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. Well, on that note, that concludes episode 71 of Astro Soundbites. Galaxies say hello. Galaxies say halo, however you prefer to pronounce halo. If you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our episodes, check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Audible, or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.